Happy New Year's, everybody. Father Yuri here. I'm taking a week off today, and uh, instead of doing a fresh interview, I'm actually going to be including the Patreon exclusive interview, the entire thing, for Dr. Gail Wolosjak, who I interviewed a, a handful of weeks ago. Uh, she's a scientist as well as an Orthodox Christian and straddles the line between those two worlds very well. So I'd like to share the uh, extended interview with you all. Also, uh, if you're a patron, we're actually having a live Q&A session with her on January 13th on Wednesday. So if you're a patron, uh, make sure you uh, come out for that. And if you want access to that, come on, become a patron and we'll get you in for that. So enjoy this episode of Dr. Gail Wolschak's Patreon exclusive extended interview. Have a happy new year. Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world Hello, patrons, and welcome to the extended interview with uh, Dr. Gail Wolschak. Uh, we left off last time talking about kind of that pillar of prayer and about um, about a lot of things. I, I, I think we should just get into the first question right away. Uh, but, but actually, before we do that, can I share a story? Um, one time you came to Toronto to give a talk, and this is when I was, oh, I don't know how old I was. Like twelve, maybe. Baby. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I was I was small, and I remember you giving the talk, and I remember being able to follow along with about 20 percent 20, 20 of you know uh, of the whole thing as we were going. Um, but there were a lot of young a lot of young people my age there, and some of the questions afterwards were a little h- hilarious because some of the kids just did not understand kind of what, where you were taking uh, everybody. And I will never forget one question that was asked, which was, um, if God made aliens, why did he make them smarter than us? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if you remember this at all. but I, I, have, uh, a vague, I have a vague remembrance of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think I um, said something like, first of all, how do you know that they're actually smaller than us, smarter than us? Yeah. And uh, second of all, if God made aliens, probably our job is to go preach to them Christ. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just, I'll never forget. It was so, yeah, it was a flashbulb memory. Um, let's talk a little cloning. So uh, this is a question I like to throw out to people uh, within the church, just from time to time, just to see what kind of answers I would get back. And it's very telling not very telling it's very interesting the answers i get back because sometimes i'll say okay would cloned humans have souls and some some people look at you like you're an idiot and go of course they would uh and, and then some people look at you an idiot like an idiot and saying of course they wouldn't um and and basically every answer in between uh so yeah i i i'm just gonna throw that question over to you would clones human would well, clone let, me, humans let me let me say souls? all the things i have to say as a scientist first first of all <laughs> perfect we don't have technology to make human clones yet okay um, second of all, it is outlawed. Um, so, so, so I, I just want to make sure that nobody's thinking there are cloned humans running around. Okay, mm-hmm. but, but I, I, I think, I think the Orthodox Church would certainly say that cloned humans are ha, ha, are are human, full human beings, and have a soul, and are and should be treated like. All human beings. And in fact, I'll never forget, I had to review a paper for a guy from Greece, and he said, the Orthodox Church will probably fight cloning and say, no, we shouldn't have clones. And you know what? 
the day we get clones, the Orthodox Church will be the first ones to stand up and say, we need to protect their rights, we need to make sure that they're okay, and we need to take care of them. So, and I actually believe that's absolutely true. Um, mm. I, I think that the Orthodox Church would, would, would argue that if they are human, then they're truly human in every level. Yeah. So, so, so why would, what are some of the rationale from the Orthodox perspective on not pursuing cloning? Well, I think, you know, so first of all, you want to believe that there's a practical reason why we're doing certain science, right? There's a practical reason why we clone animals, and that is to help us understand things about the way organs function, the way um, cells function within two organisms that are virtually identical, to understand things like what we call imprinting, where there are um, around the genetics, epigenetic um, mechanisms and stuff like that. There are real reasons why you do that. But why would we ever clone a human? Um, we risk creating a human being who is, if, is likely to be imperfect because clones are almost always imperfect. And then what the heck do we do? I mean, do we kill that person? We've just introduced a cloned person into the human population. Their genes are, um, are human. They are going to contribute to the human gene pool. And you know, we, we, can't, we can't go take a shotgun and shoot them. We now have to leave them as part of the gene pool, and it becomes a very dangerous thing. Um, I think we work to protect genetics very carefully, and that would, that would be a difficulty with it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think the other reason why is, again, that justification. So, you know, the reasons why people give for cloning are, oh, I want to make myself an extra heart organ for transplants. Well, that's a pretty selfish reason um, to want to do it. Um, so then, you know, what is really the justification based on something we can't learn or understand from some other mechanism? I don't think there's a mm -hmm. good one. But fortunately, yeah. we can't do it, so there's no question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Us humans like to uh, watch those sci-fi movies, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like Dolly the Sheep, um, you know, I actually, I met Dolly. The, she was the first mm -hmm. clone that was done. She was done done in, in uh, Cambridge in UK. And um, Dolly died very young. And she died of a um, of a disease that most sheep get at age, you know, and when when they're in very senior years of life, Dolly got it like at about age fifteen, like, and I think sheep live about thirty some years, and and she died of it young, and that that's the worry about cloning is that we're creating an accelerated aging process. Oh, interesting. Um, we can go back to cloning in a bit. Um, I have a interesting question uh which is what have you been wrong about so so uh any kind of studies that you've done or maybe even uh theological learning or anything like that what have you really had to like oh i've i've been going down kind of this wrong path here i need to readjust or or uh, recalibrate yeah i mean so so from a theological perspective i mean i think i think probably i was much more dogmatic in my youth and I believed oh, it had to be this one way. And as I got older, I and as I learned more and saw more, I became much more open. Um, I think I was more um, anti. You know, okay. So, so I had I had prejudices against, you know, other religions, against Lutherans, against you know Judaism, against many. And now, as I've gotten to be older, I'm kind of, you know, much. I, I can find good in all of them, and I'm happy for that. I mean, I, I'm. I'm happier in I, I can take joy in 
the good instead of always worrying that it's not exactly perfect because you know it it there, there was just an inappropriate expectation um so so that's one thing i've been wrong very very wrong in um and mm-hmm. but i think that's kind of common you're dogmatic when you're young and then you you know mm-hmm. loosen up when you get older so from my science i mean we make lots of mistakes in the lab i you know i mean it, but but i think that it's a very hard lesson to learn um, and I, I, I learned the lesson. I learned it a hard way. And that is that you, you have to always trust your data, not your theory. So you can have a great idea in your mind about why something happens. But in the end, the data can tell you it doesn't happen this way. And you have to accept that actually it doesn't happen that way, even though you think the idea is so cool and so beautiful, and it would change everything if it were true. Well, that's not what the data say. So follow the data. That's what's the most important. It's good to have ideas, but be willing to throw them out the window when they're not true anymore. Mm. That, that was a hard lesson. but uh, Do you ever get any pushback from, um, let's say, perhaps your teaching position with the, at the Lutheran school there? Do you ever get any pushback from, let's say, students or, or faculty, the fact that you're Orthodox teaching at a Lutheran school? Oh, no, no. In fact, they wanted me because I'm Orthodox. Um, oh. they, were, they, said, they said, we are getting these weirdo people to teach our religion and science class the, that worship stones. And they come in the door <laughs> and they have like these very strange ideas. So, you know, we're so happy to have somebody who actually believes in God teaching our students. <laughs> um, so, so, so I don't get any negative. I don't get any pushback, even a little. Um, in fact, I, you know, the Lutherans, you know, like they have icons in some of their churches um, at the little Lutheran store up, up by the airport where their uh, offices are. They, they have a shop that sells icons. Um, you know, I've been to many homes that have icons. I mean, there's, there's a lot of similarity there. I don't feel any, I I don't feel even a little bit of, um, animosity at all. Mm -hmm. So if, if you could give advice to, um, a, a budding theology student, uh, maybe fresh out of high school, uh, going into maybe a religious studies program or something with the intention of eventually maybe doing a, a MDiv or something like that. What would be some of your advice uh, to, to that student? Well, you know, the thing I tell students, there are a couple of things I tell students all the time. And I don't know if it matters whether it's a theology student or what, but, but number one, a lot of them believe that their choice of school is everything and that they have to go to a particular school and especially, you know, if they want to be ordained, they want to go, they want to follow a certain path, they must go to this, this school X. And I, I often tell them, you know, I know students that have gone to Harvard and Yale that are my worst students. And I know students that have gone to a little school down the street and they're my best students. I mean, in the end, you need to pick where you go based on your comfort level and where you're likely to achieve the best. And sometimes when you're comfortable, Sometimes when you're in a situation that you uh, can, can actually sort of enjoy it a little bit, you often achieve the best. And so I, that's, that's one piece of advice I tell all students, but more particularly theology students, because they feel so um, kind of married to the pedigree. Um, and I don't think the pedigree is also, also important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
given and, that and you wait, are... a second there's a second thing I yes, please. To say yes please um the second thing is sometimes when we're studying about faith and religion we can get caught up so much in what we study that we forget god and we forget to have a prayer life and we forget to keep that spiritual dimension um i think that that's absolutely essential for um for the student for any student at all but especially the student that's going into theology because i think it's easy to um i think saint mac one of the saints said to get caught up in the things that are about God and forget about God. Mm. Yeah, in my first uh, year or so of my my Masters of Divinity in in Orthodox studies, I I, I felt well. Let's just say I didn't have necessarily the the most developed prayer life at the time, um, and there were definitely times that I felt like I was looking into the depths of an ocean. And I didn't have a life raft at all, right? It, it, and I didn't know there was nothing to grab onto. There was nothing. Um, yeah, it was it was a weird feeling. It, it was a weird feeling of of not actually. Um, yeah, I, it's very tough for me to describe, like not having a life raft, not having a handrail to hold on to. And, but, but nonetheless, because it's part of your homework, you're yeah. reading all these fathers and like looking into the yeah. depths of the ocean, into the depths of infinite space, right? Yeah. Um, and it can kind of, I don't know, it can, I, I asked one of my professors one time, uh, you know, I told him, I heard that uh, seminary is the place where faith goes to die. What do you think of that? And he said, um, yes. That's your faith should go to die, but it should rise from the dead as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question about other scientists. So you, you are a scientist who is also religious and like we mentioned a little bit in the public episode, how often those two forces are put uh, at enmity with each other. Um, and have you ever, I guess, could you talk a little bit about some experiences of when maybe people from within the church saw you as an outsider because you were a scientist, or and or when pe people within the scientific community saw you as an outsider because you were part of the church? Yeah, I mean, the second one is much more common. Um, I, th I think things are changing. But, you know, according to statistics, not even 50% of scientists believe in God. So I'm already an anomaly there anyway. Um, and it's, it's a strange world because people don't actually talk about their religion at all. They don't talk about um, what, they, what, what they believe. I mean, I always tell this story. I, was, I remember I used to work at Mayo Clinic. I did my postdoc and was on faculty at Mayo Clinic for a little while. And this... Uh, this guy, I, I, and it was time for me to move. I was actually moving to Chicago, taking a new job, and there was like, you know, going away party for me. And this guy who worked like down the hall from me, we always got along, we collaborated, we published papers together. He comes up to me and he says to me, Gail, I'm really going to, I'm going to miss your going away party because I'm a deacon in the Episcopalian church and I need to serve tonight. Now, I can't believe that, you know, I mean, I knew him for seven years there. And for seven years, I never knew that about him because we keep our religious life and our scientific lives 
so separate. Um, that's how how dramatic it is. And the only time you might know something about somebody's religion is, you know, if 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 they're Orthodox and you probe it a bit, you know, oh, that's a Greek last name, and you, you just probe it. Um, but it is, I think that's very usual. So so. I've experienced a couple of times where there was prejudice against me within the scientific community because of this. It was bizarre. I I was um, I went when I moved to Northwestern. I went to meet with the molecular biology chair and said, you know, I, I'm in radiation department, but I would love to have a um, an appointment, a joint appointment in molecular biology because I do molecular biology and I was trained as a molecular biologist. And um, and he said, well, I I ordinarily, I would be happy to give you an appointment, but I just saw that you do this teaching at Lutheran School in this course on on um, the epic of creation, which is the name of our evolution course, because it's an epic of the stories. And mm-hmm. um, and he said, and I can't have anybody that's a creationist in my, in, my, in my group, in my department. And I said to him, but I'm not a creationist. I, I believe in God, but I'm not a creationist. And he says, well, I'm an atheist and I don't believe it. Now, in the end, he backed down and gave me a faculty appointment, but I had to really fight hard for that. I mean, which I think is crazy. So then what happened to me um, a few years after that was um, I, I, a really good friend of mine would, had recommended me to speak at a conference in Germany. And um, and then he called me up afterwards. He says, well, they're not going to invite you. And I, I said, mm, OK, what, what happened? And he said, they saw that you're teaching at a seminary. And they think that's too religious for for our uh, for, for their for their workshop. I'm like, but I, I don't talk about religion when I give a scientific lecture. Um, but it was that, but that's the level of prejudice. Um, the only thing I'd say is I, I do feel like things are changing a little bit. Um, we have I've had several students that come to work in the lab because they believe and they've and they say, look, I, I you know I saw that you actually teach some theology courses and. You know, I feel more comfortable uh, coming to work with you. Is that okay? And certainly I've had, I have like, for instance, I have a Muslim uh, scholar who works with me and she wants to say her prayers at the right times of the day. And so I, we created a space for her in the lab where she could say her prayers um, without any, without fear of anybody interrupting them. Um, I'm not sure that many other labs would do something like that. Um, but, but I, like I said, I, I think younger scholars you'll find are a little bit changing. There's a little bit more openness. Yeah. I'm feeling that shift in society that there tends to be more of an acceptance of at least the mystical or the, or the spiritual, if not the, the organized, uh, religion. Um, so what are some of the biggest misconceptions about scientists that you've heard from from the lay people? Oh, let's see. Um, I think the biggest misconception is about language and vocabulary. Um, the, there are some scientists who just can't communicate with anybody. They, they can communicate with other scientists. I mean, we have a jargon that, um, you know, the Orthodox Church has a jargon, you know, I mean, we, we have words in the Orthodox Church that we understand that nobody understands outside us. And when I talk to Lutherans, they don't, they don't know a lot of the stuff that we talk about, right? Well, in science, because we talk about things that are extremely technical, we use words that p- other people don't understand. And 
sometimes there's a, con- a misconception that we're deliberately talking like that so nobody can understand us. I've heard that often. And um, and what, what I try to explain to them is that, you know, there, that we, we, it, it's a way of being precise about what we do, but it is really hard. I, I've given, I give these lectures where I actually take the real slides I would use for a scientific audience and I present them to a lay audience, but I talk about them in words that they can understand. Now, I can't give the same length of talk. Um, I have to because it takes so long to explain. But but when I do that, I feel like they can actually appreciate that we're not trying to hide anything. We're really just trying to, um, you know, trying to explain. I had a recent experience. Um, I gave I I had a thing where I I gave I I wrote an article on public orthodoxy on COVID vaccines and on vaccines in general. And you know, there's a lot of worry about vaccines and a lot of people that believe that vaccines came from stem cells and they shouldn't be used, they shouldn't be given. And, you know, and, and, and um, so I, I, get, I wrote the article, I did a little, I did a commentary with some, I, I think Orthodox Theological Society of America. And then I got this, um, these, I started to get some email hate mails where people were like, look at this, this article shows that autism causes cancer. And this article, says that you get autism more if you get vaccinated and the vaccines cause epilepsy. And I had all these articles, you know, people that were sending articles. And, you know, finally I tried to explain. I said, this is how I had to explain this. And I, I'm not sure if they ever listened to me, but this is what I said. I said, I, there is a website called PubMed where every scientist must deposit every article they ever write. And it is fully accessible to the entire public. I said, if you do a search on vaccines, you will find approximately 400,000 articles there. If you go through those articles, you will find some you understand. You, if you read those, you will see exactly what we're dealing with with science. It is, vaccines do not cause autism. Vaccines do not cause epilepsy. Um, but that's, you know, that's the kind of weight of the scientific literature Versus a newspaper article that somebody wrote or somebody's, you know, little blog post that they decided to do. And it be, it's very hard. It, it's, a, it's a big misconception. I think there's not, a, there's not appreciation for the depth and the breadth of the literature. I mean, you know, it is huge. Yeah, I, I think it's easier to eat a microwaved meal than a nice home-cooked, you know, proper ingredients from the garden. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I had, I had a friend one time who explained it's sort of this this concept, but he he explained um, in in the context of music that people listen to that popular music. He called it microwave music. It's it's the kind it's the kind of uh, music meal that you could just throw in the microwave for a minute, and there you have your mashed potatoes and your steak. Yeah, and, and you kind of like it because it's catchy, but you know, after after about the third play, it's boring now, right? Yeah, and, and you don't feel good after eating that meal and everything like that. But there, there's um, most people now don't read the articles. They they don't even read those newspaper uh, or online article yeah. uh, articles. They read the title of the article. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. That's and, right. And then if if the website or the source is of the source that they like, then they'll accept it as as authoritative. Um, yeah, it's a tough skill to be able to actually to actually 
tr- actively try and encounter thinking that you know uh, you disagree with to try and really grapple with it and and everything like that and I think it's a worthy skill to try to try and develop. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is challenging. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, to the, one of the questions we promised the patrons was that question of what does the church get wrong about science? And maybe we could frame this more um, in maybe a story kind of way or, or or things like that. Have you ever kind of interacted with with um, people within the church who have sort of kind of wholesale misunderstood something completely, but still kind of went forward or, or anything like that? Well, I, I think for sure that vaccine issue I just brought up is one of those. I mean, there's a whole community up in Alaska, an Orthodox community that refuses to, ba- to vaccinate their children because of that one issue. Um, they, they actually, I mean, there's a real argument, there's a real issue there and the issue is that there are stem cells from an aborted fetus that are used to make vaccines. The fetus was aborted in the 1960s. Another one has not been aborted. It was a therapeutic abortion. And, you know, what are we going to do? Kill all those cells and say we're never going to use them when we could save so many lives from that one aborted fetus? I mean, the Roman Catholic Church has given it a blessing, and most Orthodox hierarchs have too. But um, there are some people, I mean, there there are whole groups in Chicago, for instance, that have approached the bishop and announced that nobody should get vaccinated, um, tried to get the bishop to take a strong stand on it, um, all based, I think, on a, you know, a, it's not a false idea, but it is based on making something very small be, be too important. Um, I don't know why, if something saves so many lives, and the aborted fetus was already aborted in 1960s, and killing those cells is not going to make anybody come back to life. And there's a promise that no, none will be aborted again. I don't understand why that issue would be this lead to this entire giant anti-vaxxer um, uh, dialogue. And it is heavy in the church. Um, it's part of this fundamentalist movement, um, you know, anti-evolution anti-vaxxer, anti-environment, anti I mean it's it's really big and it's it's frustrating. Now, yeah, I I have a clarifying question. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I I'm just not informed, I guess, but could you talk a bit about what is this about the uh, kind of aborted fetus that is used to to make vaccines and what what vaccines for what and I'm just missing. So so most of our that. vaccines, not all in the US, but like like for instance, let's let's use measles, okay? The measles vaccine, measles kills a large number of children. I mean, that, a lot of people think it doesn't, but measles is a very severe disease. So um, the way in which we make a measles vaccine is we grow the virus on cells that came from an aborted fetus. Um, those cell, cells are what we call cell lines. There are many, many of these that have been propagated throughout the world. We use those same cells from that same aborted fetus for all the vaccines. So every vaccine for measles comes from growing them on those cells. So a large number of people will say, and particularly in the Orthodox community quite vocally, that we should abandon vaccines because they were grown unethically on these cells that were derived from this aborted fetus. Um, The arguments in favor are that Many churches, the Roman Catholic Church, and actually many Orthodox bishops have said, 
saving life is worth it. What good does, we can never bring that aborted fetus back. Number two, promise that we'll never do it again. And number three is that it was a therapeutic abortion and would have had to take place after all anyway. So those were kind of, those are kind of the pros and cons arguments that go on. Um, but it is, I think it, it's very frustrating because there have been major outbreaks of measles in certain populations in the U.S. where um, we have to maintain about 70% being immunized in order to keep uh, prevent measles from uh, breaking out in the population. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't have it in some places. Um, now, I, I need to put, say though, that was not an official position of the Orthodox church, but there are bishops that have agreed with that perspective. Um, mm -hmm. and there are certainly parishes where there is a strong anti-vaxxer claim. Um, and I, and, and it's becoming more and more common. I met with at least two priests recently where it's become very, very prevalent in their own parishes. I, I, I think I have a uh, solution to fix all these problems. No, I don't. Um, but I, I am becoming very kind of concerned about the role that social media plays in perpetuating a lot of these uh, things. And, and I've had conversations with uh, people about Orthodox kind of parishioners about exactly this stuff. And one of the first things I, I ask is how much time do you spend on social media a day, right? Um, what articles do you click on? What, what are you seeing, right? Because your, your facts are not my facts, right? We, we, we no longer have a, uh, a common truth to, yeah. um, to meet at and discuss. We're not using words the same way anymore. Um, and, and like, uh, Truth is being, you know, truth is being sold to the highest uh, bidder for advertising on social media. So, uh, yeah, that's one thing I, I'm kind of thinking through is, is how can I contribute to kind of having a more healthy uh, church community, but but trying to think about social media and having healthy habits uh, around that because it just feeds what you're already looking at, and and you're never hardcore enough for social media. They always feed you the next hardcore thing to keep you in to keep your eyeballs on the screen yeah and the worrisome i mean i don't know if it's i don't know if it's a bad thing but you know so the church you know takes out a facebook page you know puts it up even as services that are streaming and 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 then and then gets in more involved in, in social media and then people believe that well this must be okay so they keep doing it themselves and i i think we didn't think hard through that issue um, I, I just wonder whether in that effort to make it easier for people and attract more people, or at least that's what we thought, if we made a mistake or not. And I think, I think that that's something worth, you know, going back to and asking that question, did we do a good job there? I, I'm not sure we did. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we have, we have a small, uh, I, I'm a priest of a small uh, mission church that uh, is just starting up, St. Maria of Paris Orthodox Mission in Hamilton. and. Um, one of the, we have the luxury of actually being able to sit and debate and discuss whether or not even to have a social media presence. See, that's great. That's, right? that, that's great. Yeah. And, and to sort of have a bit of the, like some of the data is, is in about 
yeah. how social media works now. So we can actually make us a, a little bit of an educated uh, decision uh, when it comes to social media. Well, and a lot of people, I mean, even, even the media on the web, I mean, even the way the web is set up is extremely, um, it, 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 it also is very advertising friendly and, um, you know, like, so for instance, if you do a search on evolution, the anti-evolution people have worked to make the first things you get be their, uh, their information instead of anything really about evolution. Um, so they, so they have like these people that just go click, click, click all the time to make it be the primary search topic that comes up. So a lot of times people don't go beyond the first or second uh, hit that they have on a topic and they assume, well, well, that's the most important or that's the best. Um, it's, you know, so even the web has become, I think, very yeah, difficult yeah. to discern, you know, what, what is, what is true and what's not there. Yeah, I, I think so. So my understanding of what's happening is, and, and social media tends to be the uh, the flashpoint of a lot of these issues. Um, but is that the the format of what you're looking at? So the way the app is designed, or the way that the scrolling works, or the colors that they use, are designed um, in a very deep psychological way, in, in such a way that you didn't even know that this is happening to basically keep keep you on that thing as long as possible without jumping off. And then the actual content that you're seeing is not randomized. You, you know, it's, yep. it's not randomized content. It is based on an advertisement model in which you are, your attention, the amount of time that you're on that screen is what the, the let's say, social media companies or the internet companies are using to sell to advertisement companies or to political organizations yep. or to whatever it might be. Be like, hey, we have this many trillion hours uh, to sell you, all right, of attention, this attention economy. And uh, one of the things that I've done recently is just cut off completely. Um, and, and, and one of the things with this podcast, actually, is that uh, for better or for worse, it is a social media-free podcast. So there is you can't go to the Prying Priest podcast social media page. It, it doesn't exist, and it won't exist. Um, but also, um, I, as a policy, have no advertisement, and will have no advertisement, even yeah. if they offer me $17 million um, <laughs> on this show. And, and the only way this show kind of will continue to exist, at least in the long run, uh, is uh, our, our patrons. Who are all ten of them are listening uh, right right now? Um, so thank, thank you, patrons. You know. Um, anyways, that was just my, uh, my my rant of the day. Well, I'm with you. I agree with you 100. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Go, man. Uh, I, I I had a good question, and then I completely uh, uh, forgot it. I guess uh, I have asked this to a couple of different. Oh, um, what is something that you wish you were asked more about? Because you're a scientist, you're you know you do some theology work there. Are there any topics that you've never had the chance to maybe speak on publicly, or or something that you wish like oh I just wish somebody would like bring me in to talk about Sergei Bulgakov or something like that? Yeah, there there are too many. I mean, normally I I can create my own opportunities if I really want to. So I can't think mm -hmm. of. I mean, I certainly have favorite topics. I love to talk about evolution. It's my very favorite thing. I can talk about it forever. I I, I often wish that I could spend more time on the science with a 
theological audience than I can. Um, I also really love one of the things I do with my students that I wish I could do with a public audience is I do a um, an experiment, actually, a computational experiment to show evolution and how it works using GenBank. Mm. So we use all the gene sequences in GenBank to do that. And and I do that with my students, but I, I really wish that I could do it with a more public audience, especially ones that were having issues with evolution. I think if you actually saw the data in front of you, you would be shocked. And it's so easy. I mean, it's so easy to do, you know, those sorts of experiments. It's, I, I mean, I've had high school kids do it. So those are things I wish I could do that I'm never really given the chance to do very, very well in front of, um, you know, a public audience. but. Who knows? Maybe the time will come. So you have at least a very small um, theological audience. That our patrons tend to be people who are interested in questions of theology, and and I know some of our patrons have de- uh, advanced degrees in theology. Uh, what would you want us to know about? You know, you have, in a couple of minutes, what would you want us to actually know about evolution? Um. Well, no, number one, I guess, is that evolution is the story of humanity and how we came to be on Earth. And if we deny that story, we're sort of de- denying our, our, our origins. We're denying our, ourselves. Um, I think the second thing is how very related all of life on Earth is. I mean, they, they, you know, we want to believe that like those little amoeba or bacteria or whatever that we deal with are so different from us, but they have the same genetic code. I mean, they function, their processes are the same as ours. Um, that kind of sameness of, of life on earth is to me, you know, very, very important. Um, and that unity is very important. Um, I think an- another message I, I, that to me is very important is the, the desperate need for diversity. So, you know, like tigers are getting endangered and they all have a very similar genetic code. It's going to be easy to wipe them out. Um, humans are a pretty diverse population. We maybe stand a chance because we have so much diversity to adapt to changing environments. But the less diversity a, a population has, the less chance it has to survive if there's a crisis. Um, those are lessons from evolution that I think are very important. So those are probably what I consider to be among the most important um, things. I also think just the overall idea that we don't have to, um, you know, we don't have to throw away religion to accept evolution. And that I think ways to marry those two together are very interesting and, uh, you know, can lead to some really cool places. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a little bit about how we're sensing a bit of a shift in people's uh, reactions to religion and, and things like that. So, yeah, what, what would you do? You want to speak a bit more about that? Like, what would you make of? I guess the American context is a little bit different. Sure. Actually, I think it's quite different religiously than Canada. Yeah, I think but so maybe too. a bit about the American context. Because okay, so us Canadians, we make a lot of stereotypes about America, right? Yep. So like you know, we we we're just as prejudiced as anybody else. Um, you know, we're not those tolerant Canadians that we like to think we are. Um <laughs> and when we think about American Christianity, we often think of the 
fundamentalist Bible thumping, you know, uh, uh, person. Uh, but yeah, would you make kind of a little observation about uh, the state of, I guess, spirituality slash religion in America right now? Yeah, so um, I, I don't think things are very healthy, to tell you the truth. Um, I I think what's happened, maybe it's the result of political problems, but there's a total split between a side that is um, that perceives itself as being more open, more willing to accept change, um, more accepting of scientific ideas and principles, and on the other hand, a side that I think most people would say is more fundamentalist, more closed, um, more tied to uh, you know, fundamentals. And mm-hmm. and the problem is those two sides actually can't talk to each other anymore. Um, we used to have like little ways of jumping from one to the other, but now there's almost none. And that's that's the picture of the religious landscape in the U.S. If you now add in the non-religious people into that mix, there are most of those, I'm not going to say all, but a, a, really a large number of those assume that all religious people are in that fundamentalist group. And so they, they have this, you know, like, so if you say God, you are automatically put in this very fundamentalist group. Um, and so that's the problem I think we face right now is that there's no, that the sides can't even communicate. We can't even find common words uh, to use and have them mean the same thing. Um, I, I don't know how we're going to overcome it. I really don't. Um, it's and, and I think the Orthodox Church faces it, too. Um, there are many parishes that like, for instance, um, the COVID situation has split parishes. I talked to a priest in the South who has parishioners who refuse to wear masks to church. And then there are others who won't come to church unless there are people in masks. And where do those people meet? You know, I mean, they can't meet. So either you have a group that are going to church with no masks and, you know, COVID spreads, or you have people going with not going at all because they won't go in a community where there are no masks. Um, the, in in Chicago, a few weeks ago, there was a Serbian wedding. Serbian Orthodox Church has not been promoting the use of masks in the church. No, uh, not a wedding, a funeral. I'm sorry, a funeral. Twenty eight people were COVID positive after that funeral. Um, and yet nobody. It's not acknowledged. It's not considered. Um, and and so that's that's an argument that's going on within the Orthodox Church itself. Um, and that that's just that's an existential issue, but there are just as many issues that seem to be peripheral. And I I really don't I don't know how to solve it. I really don't know how to solve it. Um because the group that's claiming to be open is not open to fundamentalist ideas. The group that's fundamentalist is ha, has their set of views and that's it. And and honestly, there there sometimes there's no talking that goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to take us to the end of our recording today, um, I usually go between one, two, or three different uh, ending questions, but I think I'm going to go with this one for you, which is, 
Uh, we're going to make it personal here. In what ways would you like to see yourself grow uh, in regards to matters of faith in the next year or two? Like, what, what are some ways that you'd like to see yourself grow? Well, I think I think what I've learned, you know, in COVID has taught me a lot. I've had to spend a lot of time, you know, not really meeting with my colleagues as much, isolating. Um, not going to church so much because for the for the very same reasons because we have a restricted number that can show up for our church on a Sunday. And what happened during that time is that my prayer life actually got better. Um, so I, I take away the busyness, and now I have time to say my prayers more often and read and do all those things that like that make me spiritually grow. And honestly, what I'm afraid of is that we're going to, COVID's going to go away and my spiritual life is going to go the same place. Um, so what I want to do is somehow be able to preserve this, even when my busy schedule comes back, um, to somehow be able to pare it down enough to retain this rule of prayer that I'm doing, this um, uh, practice of silence and all those things. That's what my goal is. I, I, I don't, I think, I think prayer is the only thing that's going to get me there to tell you that. So. Well, we, uh, we've, we've reached the end. We've done it. We've recorded an episode. Father, thank you so much. You are, you are a delight to talk to. I, I really enjoyed this. Well. It was really fun. Really fun. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was very lovely when I actually called you, uh, to uh, called you to, to invite you and you, you pick up the phone. You were immediately, it, it felt your energy to me felt like we were just weak friends that spoke on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that's how I felt when I, when you, when I, when your father actually e emailed me, I was like, mm -hmm. Whoa, I can't believe it. This will be so great. So I'm really glad. Mm -hmm. So thank awesome. you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Really my oh, pleasure. we'll have you on again in, oh, in a please while. Do. Please and, then, do. and then I'll, I'll check back with you to see how, uh, how, how, um, how you've grown in the past a while regarding, uh, yeah, after your, COVID, uh, we'll see how I survived it. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Cool. Okay, well, it was lovely to uh, talk with you, and uh, we'll uh, check back with you soon. Sometime. Okay, good night. You take care, okay? 